Say hello to those of you online as well. Uh, my name is Jeff, if we haven't met. And uh, if you're visiting with us, uh, we'd love to get to know if you'd be willing to stick around. I'd love to meet you after the service. We have bags in the back that we would love to bless you with. And I said this first service, I'll say it again, because we've got more of you online in the month of December than we've had for a while. And some of you may be new faces. So if you are new to Crossview and you're a part of our online community, if you email me, I'll mail you one of the bags. So you get one of those too. We want to make sure that you feel welcome. Uh, kids, I'm going to dismiss you out that door. Or Nate's come. Nate's right in the doorway. Just follow Nate. Um, be a part of children's worship. Uh, I'm going to invite the ushers to come forward as well. I see you're all ready to go. So, again, if you're visiting with us or you're newer to Cross, you please don't feel pressure to give. This is just one of many ways that we have chosen to worship God. And I'm going to run through uh, some of the announcements. We had planned on showing a, a video with one of our missionary partners, but we had some problem with the formatting in first service, so that will be delayed for another week. But I want to invite you back this uh, Friday. It's Christmas Eve, December 24th. We're going to do one service at 6 p.m. It's usually, if you're new at Crossview, it's usually about an hour service. Uh, we'll sing. I think we'll sing more than we normally sing, and I'll preach shorter than I normally do. And we'll just enjoy being—you didn't sound too happy about that. I don't know about um, but we'll do that Christmas Eve, and it's going to be, because it's one service, it will be mask optional, uh, but I will say with great confidence that it will be streaming. We were, with all the travel, I was a little afraid we wouldn't have somebody who knows how to do all this, but just found out we can do it. So we'll be streaming for Christmas Eve. Uh, for those of you who serve in children's ministry, uh, you'll be excited to hear this, and this may be incentive for those of you who don't to choose to serve. Uh, Sarah, our children's director, made bags, goodie bags of homemade chocolate peppermint bark. And so if you did, your name should be on a bag out there. Um, if not, somebody from first service just took your bag probably because they wanted it. Um, but if you like that, grab that. And if you like that idea, sign up for children's ministry. There you go. And then uh, finally, I just wanted to point out in this, uh, for those of you at home, you won't be able to see this, though you're benefiting from this. Uh, you'll see that we are kind of in construction. We've had a temporary, I mean, we've had about a year, I think Carl was telling me, just over a year of live streaming, and we really just kind of figured it out on the run, which I am forever grateful to the guys who've sorted all that stuff out. Uh, but we've had this temporary thing that wasn't very pretty and wasn't really working great, so we, we're building this thing, just you see it. You can even see in the skeletal process, there's electrical outlets, there's tube for cords, so it's going to help things be way more organized so that we can continue live streaming for those of you who are at home. Um, and if you're wondering, I think it's going to have the exact same wood paneling as the current smaller thing. So that's just going to, it's just, woohoo, yeah, there you go. So, uh, and maybe at Christmas time, it'll have lights around it. Who knows? We'll see. But that's coming, so thanks for your patience there. Um, but because we don't have the video, that's all I have for announcements. So let's pray, and then we'll get into the message this morning. So. Uh, Jesus, we are so grateful to gather in your name. Um, I just pause to recognize that there's a lot of other things we could be doing with our time right now. There's a, a lot of other places we could be inhabiting, but we've chosen, whether we're in this room or online, we've chosen to 
to really focus our attention on you. And I actually, that's something I've been learning in my prayer life. Uh, Jesus, I recognize that we're approaching Christmas and there's lots running through our heads and it's busy and it's hard to slow down. And if we get distracted this morning, I've just been thinking, I've been trying to practice solitude more. Would we remember that every time we're distracted, it's an opportunity to return our attention to you. (laughs) Every time we're distracted, it's an opportunity to come back to you, to focus our heart, to choose you, Jesus. So this morning we choose you, and even if we get distracted, we choose you again and again, and we don't have to feel shame or guilt. We can celebrate that you are always there waiting for us with really good news. And so we are eager to receive that this morning. In your name we pray, amen. Well, we're still in Advent, so this isn't an all happy, easy, joy, perfect, good message. We're going to lean into some pain and discomfort because Advent is about waiting, but we're going to start with excitement. And I was just thinking, if we were a small group, I would have fun asking you, what, what, what gets you excited about Christmas or when you were growing up? What were the things that made you excited? Because what made me excited, I think it's still funny. I went to a smaller church when I was growing up, and we would go to a church service on Christmas Eve, just a small thing. A lot of the kids were involved. There was nothing special. But we would go from there out to my mom, and my, my mom has two sisters, so we, and we all lived in the same area. So we would go to my aunt's and then to my, to, to my mom's house, my house that I grew up in. And we would start at Aunt Carol's house. And I still, I mean, I would love a book on how this happened. But we would go to Aunt Carol's and we would eat water chestnuts wrapped in bacon and this nacho cheese dip that my Aunt Carol only made once a year. And then we would open Aunt Carol's presents. And then we would go from Aunt Carol's to Aunt Marge's and we would eat what would be logical after you've had water chestnuts wrapped in bacon and nacho cheese dip, we had Christmas cookies. And so at Aunt Marge's, we only ate Christmas cookies. That's all we ate. Open presents from Aunt Marge. Then we would drive to our house, and of course, what do you, what's the next logical thing? We would eat uh, shredded chicken sandwiches, but, you know, it's the kind you scoop, you know, you scoop it out. So the nice, moist, shredded chicken sandwiches, and then shrimp cocktail. That is how we ended the night, and we all went to bed feeling gross and got up and went to Grandma's in the morning. But that was, but I loved it, and I thought it was normal until you go to college and you realize no one else does that kind of thing. But, but, but. You probably have your own things, right? The things that make you excited. Christmas is this Saturday, folks. I know you're excited. Well, we're going to re-enter the biblical story this morning, and we're in Luke chapter 1. We're going to pick up in verse 39, and there's a lot of excitement. The original Christmas excitement, Mary has just found out that she is going to be the mother of Jesus, the mother of this coming king. And so in verse 39, she heads out a few days later, hurries to the hill country of Judea, to the town where Zechariah lived. Now, Zechariah was the husband of her relative Elizabeth. You would know about Zechariah if you began in Luke chapter 1, verse 1. He's been introduced, but this morning we're jumping in in verse 39. So Mary shows up at the home of Zechariah and Elizabeth, and she enters, and, and she greets Elizabeth. And at the sound of Mary's greeting, if you read through the Gospel of Luke and then continue into the book of Acts, also written by Luke, you will find out that Luke loves to point out where the Holy Spirit is moving. (laughs) Loves to point it out. And so he says, Mary greets Elizabeth and this child leaps as John the Baptist. This child, we've been talking about John the Baptist the last two weeks, leaps within Elizabeth. And Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. It's a prophetic, sacred moment. It's really cool. And Elizabeth, responding to this moment of worship, gives out a glad cry, and she exclaims to Mary, we'll talk a little bit about this, she, 
she begins, I mean, it really is prophetic because she's going to, this is what the prophets do. She's going to say something that is absolutely true, but she doesn't even know how true it is. This is what the Old Testament prophets do all the time. They, they begin to dream about how God is going to make the world right, but, but they don't even know how true it is, how amazing God is, how, what God's going to do. They, they just, they have some idea. So Elizabeth is going to respond kind of prophetically, and then Mary's going to pray slash sing prophetically beyond what they even understand in the moment. They know it's true, but they don't even know how true. Elizabeth says to Mary, God has blessed you above all women, and your child is blessed. Why am I so honored? Again, this is the part she doesn't even fully understand, that the mother of my Lord should visit me. And then she says this, and I don't know, this is, I think... She, this is like Holy Spirit inspiration that she understands. Uh, maybe some of you moms can connect with this. Us guys, we don't have access to this kind of knowledge. She says, why am I so honored that the mother of my Lord should visit me? When I heard your greeting, the baby in my womb jumped. But didn't just jump. Jump for joy. <laughs> I mean, John the Baptist is about I think, somewhere about three months from being born and just being in the presence of of the baby Jesus in the womb of Mary very early on, and John is responding with joy. Something is happening here, right? And then Elizabeth, again, further Holy Spirit inspiration, says to Mary, you are blessed because you believe that the Lord would do what he said. Mary, you are blessed because you're a woman of faith. Because God has made these promises, and you know that every one of these promises will have a yes. You believe, you trust. And the natural outworking of living a life of trust, being a woman of faith, is you'll experience the blessing of God. So Mary then responds, and I can only imagine, you know, you've had an angel visit you. You're the only human in history to be a virgin giving birth, right? This is kind of a big deal. And she cries out. She prays. She sings. Verse 46, oh, how my soul praises the Lord. I mean, this is deep within her. And this is what I mean, Mary's described as a woman of faith. She trusts God. But you're even going to see it. If this was a class, we could walk through and I could show you how much of the Old Testament is influencing the way Mary sings, what she prays. It's actually, if you ever go through our discipleship pathway formed and I teach what I learned in prayer school I think it's good to be saturated with the prayers of Scripture. Mary's saturated. Her soul praises, well, how my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. It's all about God, what he's done. And there's a little foreshadowing of where we're going to go this morning. For he took notice of his lowly servant girl. Mary's like, I'm just a humble girl. Nothing special about me, but God, the almighty God, saw me. He took notice of me. He sees me. He sees you too, actually. And from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Again, that's one of those things. Mary, Mary has no idea how true, we're 2,000 years later. When you think about all that goes on with Mary, I mean, people know she was blessed. For the mighty one, God is holy. He's other. He's different. There's no one like him. And he's done great things for me. We're going to come back. Mary begins this prayer, this song, focusing in on what God has done for her. It's very personal for her. But she is more shaped by a Jewish worldview, biblical worldview, Old Testament worldview. You and I are often more shaped by a modern-day Babylon worldview, which we've been talking about. 
So Mary does not stay on me. (laughs) Part of our culture is very individualistic, and we love to stay on me. (laughs) Mary begins with me. It's important to know that she's loved by God, but she moves on. She knows she's a part of a community. She's a part of a family. She's a part of the people of God. And so her her song moves from herself to the people she's a part of. In, In a sense, she's representing. God shows mercy from generation to generation to all who fear him, all who have come before His mighty arm has done tremendous things. And then this is, again, where we're going to hone in a little bit. Because we've been talking about Advent, waiting on the coming of our king. And I've been raising the question pretty much every week, is it a good day when God comes or not? Is it a good day when God comes or not? And I've said, well, it depends on who you are. Because if you're proud, as you'll see, if you're proud, it's not a good day. (laughs) If you're proud... You're going to be humbled. But if you're humble, if you're willing, as we talked about last week, to rethink everything, it's a great day. It's a great day. So Mary says, and this this gets worked out all the way through the Gospels, but she's singing, God has scattered the proud and the haughty ones. And just trying to think through, how would you define proud here? What's the biblical context? I was reminded this week of the church in Laodicea. You can read about it at the very end of Revelation chapter 3. The frustration with the church in Laodicea is the church says, I don't need your help. I got, I got all I need. I'm fine. I don't need help from anyone. And this is what the Bible says. You know what Jesus does when the church says that? He vomits. It makes him sick. What do you mean you don't need help? <laughs> you're arrogant. You're ignorant. You're proud. You're haughty. And Mary is singing out, God will scatter the proud and haughty ones. He will bring down princes from their thrones. We're going to get into the revolutionary nature of this song. I promise you, as Caesar Augustus is sitting on his throne in Rome, he does not want any man or woman singing in his Roman Empire about how the king is going to be pulled down from the throne. And we'll talk about this as well. If you know the Gospels, you know the story, but... Herod the Great, who is known as King Herod, the current king of the Jews, does not want some Jewish girl singing about how he's going to be pulled down from his throne. It's a revolutionary song. Mary says he's going to scatter the proud and the haughty ones, and he's going to exalt the humble. It's a good day if you're humble. It's a good day. He's filled the hungry with good things. Are you hungry? Are you thirsty? God will fill you with good things. And he's going to send away, you could think the rich or you could say the powerful. He's going to send them away with empty. They think they have everything now. They're on top of the world now. God's going to send them away with empty hands. And we'll get into why this is such good news to the people of Israel. God's helped his servant Israel and remembered to be merciful, for he made this promise to our ancestors, to Abraham and his children forever. So that's our text for this morning. You've got Mary crying out to God. You've got these themes of mercy and faithfulness and power. One commentator says this, Mary's visit to Elizabeth is a wonderful human portrait of the older woman, pregnant at last after hope had gone, and the younger woman pregnant far sooner than she ever expected. He says this, this might have been a moment of tension. Mary may have been filled with pride at 
being pregnant so young. Elizabeth may be resentful that it didn't work out for her in the same way, but none of that is in the story. Instead, all we see in the story is glad, is, is celebration. You've got John, three months before his birth, leaping in the womb at Mary's voice. You've got the Holy Spirit carrying Elizabeth into shouts of praise and Mary bursting forth into prophetic song. It's a powerful moment with some powerful prophetic symbolism. Again, you've got a woman, Elizabeth, almost too old to be a mother, who's going to give birth to a son who's going to bring to a close the old age. The Old Testament. John the Baptist, is, as Jesus talks about him, he's like the last prophet of the old age. And in the same moment, you've got this other woman, Mary, almost too young to be a mother, who will give birth to a son who's going to bring about the new age, which is why there's so much excitement. And in the fashion, and we'll talk a little bit about the foolishness of God, you get introduced to it right away in the book of Genesis, there's a way of doing things, and the world knows the way of doing things, and God keeps doing it all wrong. The younger is supposed to serve the older, right? Every older sibling knows that. But you read through Genesis, and God keeps messing it up, and the older keeps serving the younger. And here, the older Elizabeth is going to serve Mary, and the older John is going to serve Jesus. In a sense, the Old Testament is going to serve the new, prepare the way. And in all of this, there's a celebration of God because God is the one. Mary knows this. He's taken the initiative. The Holy Spirit is moving. God is the only Lord, the Savior, the powerful one, the holy one, the merciful one, the faithful one. And so there's a celebration of God. But I want to hone in a little bit more on these circumstances. I want you to understand and feel why this is such a revolutionary song. Another author says this, Why did Mary launch into a song like this? What has the news of her son got to do with God's strong power overthrowing the power structures of the world, demolishing the mighty and exalting the humble? What's going on? Well, Mary and Elizabeth, they shared a dream. It was the ancient dream of Israel, the dream that one day all that the prophets had said would come true finally. One day Israel's God would do what he had said to Israel's earliest ancestors. All nations would be blessed through Abraham's family. That was the promise. But for that to happen, the powers that kept the world in slavery had to be toppled. They had to be overthrown. Because nobody would normally thank God for blessing if they were poor or if they were hungry or if they were enslaved, or if they were miserable. No one would say they were being blessed by God. So God would have to win a victory over the bullies, the power brokers, the forces of evil, which people like Mary and Elizabeth knew all too well, living as they did in the dark days of Herod the Great, whose casual brutality was backed up with the threat of Rome. Mary and Elizabeth, like so many Jews of their time, searched the scriptures. They soaked themselves in the Psalms and the prophetic writings, which spoke of mercy and hope and fulfillment and reversal and revolution and victory over evil and of, coming, of God coming to the rescue at last. So what's he saying? He's saying that here are two Jewish women who are both poor and oppressed, and they're living in an occupied land. They are occupied by a foreign superpower, the Roman Empire. And in their poverty and oppression, they are suddenly overflowing with joy. Why? Because they believe that something big is about to happen, that the new age is about to dawn. And somehow, 
some way through these angelic revelations, their two boys are going to be a part of the revolution of God. That somehow this crazy thing that God's going to do to reorder the world. They're, they're sons. I mean, if you're a mom, how proud would you be? Maybe you'd be scared too, but how excited. Your boys are going to be a part of the revolution. Maybe leading the change. Again, I mean, they're, they're ready. They're both pregnant in very improbable ways. One is too old, the other too young and a virgin. They both know God is doing something here. God's going to launch a revolution and the kingdom of God is going to break into this world and their boys are going to have a major part to play. Because, and I think sometimes we forget this, the world that they lived in was ruthless. And it was ruled by the ruthless and the strong. Herod the Great and Augustus Caesar were brutal tyrants. And they ran the world the way they wanted. They ran the world where they set the rules for their own advantage. That's what they did. It's actually, I mean, I remember early on reading the New Testament and, and just like cross-referencing everything and realizing that Psalm 110 and Psalm, 1, Psalm 2 show up a lot. And I figured out pretty early on why Psalm 110 shows up a lot in the New Testament because you're talking about the divinity of Jesus and this pretty cool psalm and the way that it prophesies out to the future how the Lord would say to David's Lord, well, well how does this work, right? Anyway, but Psalm 2, Psalm 2 I always struggled with. I, di- I didn't understand its deep significance. But, but I think the main reason I didn't understand Psalm 2 that the nations have claimed for themselves what God has reserved, has claimed for his son and only for his son. And the nations scoff at God as they try to control things, but God laughs because God knows who's really in control. I think I struggled to understand that for a long time because I didn't understand the full breadth of the kingdom of God. And as I've, as I've been following Jesus and trying to learn more and more about what the kingdom is and how holistic and comprehensive it is, I, I've started to understand more and more why the New Testament authors again and again turn to Psalm 2. Because there's always a Herod. There's always a Caesar. And if you actually get into history, I mean, Herod the Great was a monster. He killed his own family. I think he killed the wife he loved the most. He killed the kids. He was so afraid of losing power and protecting power. And here Mary is singing this revolutionary song because these tyrants who are ruling her world, she believes they're going to be pulled down from their thrones. Mary has been humiliated and and she believes that those who have been humiliated and exploited, they're going to be lifted up. And the ones who have been humiliated and exploiting her and others, they're going to be pulled down. So she sings this song and by the end of her song, it seems like the whole world is upside down. But again, let's dig a little bit deeper into her circumstances so that you can even feel some of the shock of her excitement. (laughs) Back then, when an unwed teenage peasant girl was found pregnant, it usually resulted in devastating retribution from the community. If you read through Matthew's accounts, Matthew's gospel informs us that Joseph, the man Mary was betrothed to Mary, was planning to quietly call off the wedding. He was being discreet because he cared about Mary and he was trying to protect her from public humiliation and social ostracism. At best, when Mary, not married, is pregnant and she tries to explain about this angel who visited her and the Holy Spirit and and all of this, at best she's going to get sarcastic comments. Sure, Mary. Yeah. Uh, Okay, Mary. Yeah, we believe you. 
And at worst, if you know Jewish law, she's at risk of being stoned for being an adulteress. Now, she wasn't an adulteress, but what other story are you going to write? How many virgins do you know who are pregnant? And that's the world that she's in. And if you continue on in the story, right, what's about to happen in a few weeks or months? Well, the Romans are going to require Mary to walk 70 miles while she's pregnant. Some of you have experienced pregnancy. How would you like that? You walk 70 miles when you're full term to some small rural town called Bethlehem. I promise you, Rome doesn't care what kind of doctor's note you can come up that says you're not fit to make that journey. Rome says you're there, you got to be there. And as we talk about Herod the Great, if you read in Matthew's gospel, what does Herod do with the wise men? Well, he finds out that there's just child being born, and people are saying this child's the king of the Jews, and Herod says, I'm the king. Again, read his story about what he does. Yeah, I'm the king. And so he kills a bunch of babies. So what do Mary and Joseph do? Well, the heaven lets them know, and so they head to Egypt, and they're refugees to protect their child. This is the world that Mary is in. And so this is part of the revolution she's singing. In fact, I was listening to somebody teach on some, archaeology is awesome. I mean, it's so cool what archaeology teaches us. And they were discovering in some homes, I mean, they're constantly, I've been to Israel, I understand there's there's so many layers of history, so there's so much still to discover. It's just history buried upon history upon history. But, but they're discovering, I think, in these homes near Nazareth that, that these homes, and they're not, they're not complicated homes. They're not advanced homes. Like, they're just very basic homes. And these homes in Nazareth around this time have secret compartments for food. Why do you have a secret compartment for food? Because Roman officers can come into your home whenever they want and take whatever they want. So you've got to hide your food so it doesn't get taken from you. Or around this time in Mary's day, not far from Nazareth, the main city was Sepphoris. It's where Jews and, and Romans lived together. Well, around this time when Mary would have been growing up, there was a rebellion of Jews. I mean, it happened frequently. The Jews rebelled against the Roman occupation. There was a rebellion against Rome, and, and, and Rome put it down. And around the time Mary's growing up, around this time in Sepphoris, 2,000 Jewish men are crucified for rebelling against Rome. 2,000. As someone was saying, this is not a snow globe scene. <laughs> it's not a happy snow globe. It's a world of chaos. But these women believe God is about to act and establish a new way of running the world. And Mary's excited because it's a way that puts the bullies out of business and it gives the meek a chance. Mary's been on the bottom of society, and she believes God's going to move for her people, and some people on the bottom are finally going to have a chance in this world of injustice. And so she's excited. So we have, again, let's just call it out. We have two unlikely pregnant women. Just think about this. Two unlikely pregnant women living in poverty in an obscure part of the world, prophesying that the world will be radically changed forever through their soon-to-be-born babies. (laughs) It's absurd, it's ridiculous, it's crazy, and at the same time, it is absolutely true. And I want to point out that Mary is excited. She knows that she is blessed. And even though all this movement of God is not going to make her life any easier, right? She's going to have to walk 70 miles pregnant. She's going to have to flee to Egypt with a young child. All this, her life is not getting easier because God is moving in the world. She's excited. She knows she's blessed. She knows she's favored. 
And that's where I want to start this morning as we kind of lean in how this plays into our lives. I want to invite you to pray or sing Mary's song with her this week. I want you to pray it. I want you to sing it. I want you to live and do it. That's what I've been doing this past week to prepare myself for the message. And I was struck this week. Mary's freedom in starting with knowing that she's blessed, that she's favored. I want you to sit with that. You and I are not blessed in the same way as Mary, right? She has a unique role in salvation. But the reason she's blessed is because God has chosen to enter into her broken, dark world and save her, which is why you and I are blessed. God himself chose to leave, every, everything's good in heaven, but he comes and he enters into our brokenness and our sorrow and our pain, and he goes all the way to the cross for you and I. He dies for you and I, and he gives us a new way of life. He resurrects, he overwhelms sin, death, evil, everything. And so Mary's blessed and you are blessed. Now, why do I take the time to say that? You're like, well, Jeff, of course, that's obvious, but I know that many of us forget that or don't really know it. How do I know it? Because I've been a pastor a long time and I've lost track. How many times I've sat with people, and people have been in a place like Mary, I'm a lowly servant, my life is broken, I'm in a place of humility, and it's hard, oftentimes tears. And I like to tell, I love to tell people, it's my favorite thing to tell people that God loves them, that God is for them, that God sees them, that God has entered into their pain with them, it's good news. And people often respond to that good news with this. Jeff, I know that God loves other people. And I know in my head that the Bible says that God loves me, but I have so much trouble believing it. Jeff, you don't know me. I know God really knows me. How could he love someone like me? I want you to hear this. God loves you. (laughs) You're blessed. You're favored by God. So pray Mary's song this week and sit with the beginning. When Mary says, I'm blessed, you're blessed too. God has entered into your world to rescue and redeem you. You are loved. You are favored. Live in that. Well, let's keep going. Because I told you this is revolutionary. Why is it revolutionary? Well, it's even more revolutionary than Mary and Elizabeth knew. They, they were speaking truth, but they didn't even know how true it was. And as And this is, I mean, Mary in many ways operates in the Gospels as an example of discipleship. And so does John the Baptist. And we get to learn from them. And both John and Mary were all in on the revolution until they realized how revolutionary it was. And both of them have problems with how Jesus is going about doing what they thought he should do. So Mary's really excited at first. I was listening to one person say that Mary is singing about the other golden rule, right? The one who has the gold gets to make the rules. And Mary says, Jesus is going to come and he's going to change that. It's revolutionary. I think I've read this before, but some of you know about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He lived during World War II in Germany. He was, he was actually one, he was one of the Christians who stood against Hitler. And not everyone did, unfortunately. But Bonhoeffer did. He stood against Hitler. He saw the evil that was happening around him and he stood up against it. It ended up costing him his life. He died because of it. But in 1933, so a few years before that, he was giving a sermon. We have some books that were written by him and some of his sermons. And he was giving an Advent sermon in 1933 on this passage. This is what Bonhoeffer said. He said, the song of Mary is the oldest Advent hymn. It is at once the most passionate, the wildest, one might even say the most revolutionary Advent hymn ever sung. 
This is not the gentle, tender, dreamy Mary whom we sometimes see in paintings. This is the passionate, surrendered, enthusiastic Mary who speaks out. This song has none of the sweet, nostalgic, or even playful tones of some of our Christmas carols. It is instead a hard, strong, inexorable song about collapsing thrones and humbled lords of this world and the power of God and the powerlessness of humankind. Now, I said Jesus is even more revolutionary. What what do I mean? Well, Jesus is going to come along and he's going to echo and expand and clarify some of what Mary and, and John taught what Mary sang. Read through the Beatitudes, the beginning of Matthew 5. They're going to feel a lot like Mary's prayer. The humble are lifted up. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Some of what Mary's singing about. And he's going to teach, as we talked about last week in John's economic study, he's going to teach, he's going to expand on all this stuff. But Mary and John were like everybody else in their day who believed that the one who was going to come and lead was one who would overthrow the Romans and make Israel the power. Everyone believed that whoever this Messiah was, he was going to do what David did with Goliath and take off the heads of the enemies. That's what the Messiah was going to do. And so you get Jesus stepping on the scene for the Sermon on the Mount, which I don't know if some of you have seen The Chosen. It's like this TV series about Jesus. I watched it. I love how they portray, they interpret Jesus preparing for the Sermon on the Mount. This great sermon that he gives, this revolutionary talk that Jesus gives. And what does Jesus say in this revolutionary talk? Love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. And you and Matt, like, What? I mean, this is even more, so revolutionary, John the Baptist is going to find himself in jail. Well, I prepared the way for Jesus, and he's going to overthrow Rome. What am I doing in jail? Is now the time? What is he talking about? Loving the Romans? He's healing Rome? What is he doing? And so John sends somebody to Jesus. Are you the one, or was I wrong? Jesus is like, well, I'm doing everything the prophet said. Just open your eyes, John. My kingdom is not of this world. Even Mary is going to come with some of Jesus' brothers. And and there's a sense, if you get into the scholarship, Mary is really asking Jesus, are you crazy? Claiming to be God? Are you crazy? I mean, even even Mary and John is revolutionary. Jesus is a, a different kind of revolutionary. And I hope you feel some of this. Paul calls it the foolishness of God. A crucified Messiah, the ultimate oxymoron. Crucifixion is defeat and death. Messiah is victory in life. How does that come together? It comes together in Jesus Christ. It is the foolishness of God, but it is the absolute wisdom of God. I like to think sometimes that one of the main, not the main reason, I'm a Christian because of who Jesus is. I'm all in on Jesus. But when I think about this message of a crucified Messiah, I think who else could dream this up? I mean, it's so beautiful, it's so brilliant. No human being could ever dream this up. Only God could dream this up. I'm all in. John and Mary didn't see it coming. It's coming. And you and I are invited to sing with Mary to join the revolution. Now, you might say, wow, that's, that's radical, Jeff. And if you're telling me I need to love my enemy, pray for those who pray, that's, that, that changes everything. I say you're finally getting it. You're finally beginning to understand the revolution that Jesus is bringing. 
Actually, I was thinking back. I don't think I've been very prophetic in a lot of my life, but I have a few moments when I look back at my story where I think I said something like Mary and Elizabeth that was truer than I ever knew. If you ever hear me tell my testimony, I will talk to you about my sophomore year in college. I was wrestling with C.S. Lewis has, had written a book, Mere Christianity. Some of you have read it. And in it, he's got this famous argument, Lord, liar, or lunatic. Jesus claimed to be God. You have to take Jesus on his terms. And so either he was a lunatic who believed he was God, but he's not. Or he was a liar. He knew he wasn't God, but he told people he was. Or he really is God in human flesh, and he's Lord of all. And I wrestled with that my sophomore year of college. And I, and I remember, and this is, what I, this is what I tell people. I knew in that season that if Jesus is who he claims to be, then everything in my life needs to change. And if he's not, I'm done with all this religious stuff. Well, Jesus revealed himself to me. And I knew at the time that everything needed to change, but I didn't know what everything was. And the longer I walk with Jesus, the more he shows me what he's doing, what it means to be a part of his kingdom, the more I learn, oh, everything is everything. It is every part of who I am, but it goes beyond that into all of his creation. It is everything. It's such good news. Follow Jesus. Learn from Jesus. And you and I are invited to join the, the revolution. And we've been talking about what does it look like to rebel for the kingdom. What did we say last week? Rebel against greed. Be generous. Rebel. Rebel against the greed of our day. Rebel against the consumerism of our day. Rebel against fear. Love someone that you would normally be tempted to be afraid of. Rebel against hate this Christmas season. I know we've all experienced hate in the last two years in some way, shape, or form. Rebel by showing love to those who hated you. Don't hate your way out of hate because you'll never get out of it. Love your way out. You say, how does that work? I said, that's the beauty of the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God. Just do it, and you'll find the fruit. Learn to follow Jesus. Rebel against sadness. I know, I know for some of you, Christmas is not all lights and giggles, right? I know this can be a hard time. And believe me, if you've been around Crossview, I'm all in on lament. Cry out to God. But don't go to despair. Don't lose hope. I know we live in a chaotic time, but don't lose hope. Rebel. Hold on to hope. Even if you don't feel it, hold on to it. Because like Mary, you're a person of faith. And you believe that God will do everything he said he will do. And so you live with trust. You live with hope. You rebel. And you rebel and we talk about this, I hope, more and more and more. But you rebel by fighting with the weapons of the kingdom. And what are the weapons of the kingdom? Well, they're the things that we talk a lot about. Kindness and gentleness and forgiveness and love and mercy and patience and courage. It's countercultural. It's probably not what you were trained to fight with in modern-day Babylon, but that's what we fight with. That's the kingdom. So how do you revolt, then? How do you rebel? How do we get there? So let, let me say this. I'm, what, I, what I'm going to say next, what I'm going to invite you into as you pray, as you sing Mary's song this week, I'm not saying this for Christmas morning, okay? Christmas morning, get up, put on your Christmas robe and spread glitter everywhere and eat a cookie for breakfast. I don't care. Have fun. But we're still in Advent. And so we're preparing. 
And one of the things that we are getting all too accustomed with in our culture, and there's a million reasons why, is that anything that breathes of discomfort, we avoid it at all costs. But here's the thing. If you avoid discomfort, if you continue to numb yourself with whatever food or other substance you turn to or whatever technology that just disengages your mind and your heart, if you continue to do that, you will never know the fullness of the joy and the laughter and the life that Jesus offers you because you'll never sit with Jesus in your place of poverty to let him lift you up and make you whole. Do you understand, in in modern-day Babylon, we're way too good at climbing to the top on our own strength and saying, I'm here because I got here, and just allowing that pride, that haughtiness to build and build. I'm not saying you don't have any places in your life to be excited about. You do, and be thankful for them. Don't take credit for them. (laughs) Thank God, because he played a major role. But be thankful. But don't be proud. And if you want to prepare for the coming king, you can't sit in those high places of success. You need to enter into your own place of poverty. Or we could call it this morning your home of humility. You need to find the places in your life where you're weak, where your dreams have gone up in smoke, where you don't have strength to hold it together. You can't hold it together. Where you've failed, where you've disappointed, where you've sinned egregiously and you know, where someone has sinned against you and you have borne, you you need to sit in those places of poverty and wait for your king to come and save you. You don't save yourself because when you do, you just make things worse. It's Advent. I know we're not to Christmas Eve and December 26th, the first Sunday after Christmas, we will celebrate the coming king. That's what we will do. But we're still in Advent. I know it's countercultural, but we're in Advent. And we're going to, this week before Christmas, if you really want to celebrate Christmas morning, then sit with God in your pain and in your sorrow. And let the grace of God run downhill into your life. Because that's usually, the grace of God doesn't usually run up to your success. It usually runs down to you and your failure. And some of you might say, well, I'm in a pretty good season right now, Jeff. I would say, great, we need you. Bring your joy, bring your strength, bring your stability. I'm thrilled for you. Some of us are having a hard Christmas and we need, that's what the church, we need each other. But if you're in a good season this Christmas and you want to prepare for the coming king, then reach into your painful past because I know you have it. I know there's still a part of your story that hasn't been fully healed. And I try to tell you that God is beyond time. He's bigger than time. The grace of God can reach into stuff that's happened 20 years ago that is still impacting the way you relate to your family today. Well, sit there and ask Jesus to come and heal that. Or what about, I know some of you, well, what about your anxious feet? We're all anxious. Too anxious. Well, well, maybe right now is good. Maybe... Maybe the past doesn't seem horrible, but I know you're worried about something. Well, don't numb yourself. Don't avoid it. Don't ignore it. Don't run from it. Be willing to sit in your discomfort for five minutes if that's how you need to start. Sit in your discomfort and let the love of Jesus invade your life. Let him turn your sorrow into joy. Leap with John the Baptist. Then you'll really know joy. All this stuff that our culture does to numb our discomfort, that's not real joy, and that's not real happiness. And you know that, 
but you and I have been trained to avoid it. So we, so we follow Jesus. We walk with Jesus. Sorry, I got going a little long in there. I want, I want to end with a poem. I got a friend. I got a friend who, who's from the last church I was a part of. She, she has, a, she's got an incredible. She's an amazing person, amazing family. But she, she had one of her kids was born with all kinds of medical issues. I think she's had over ninety brain surgeries. So just imagine being a parent again and again, going to the hospital to care for your child through the years as you navigate this. And imagine being in that kind of medically sensitive situation in the pandemic. So I was at a funeral and I ran into my friend. We hadn't seen each other for a while and she was sharing with me how hard the pandemic, how lonely she feels, how hard the pandemic has been for her, trying to navigate all the confusion around staying healthy and keeping her daughter healthy. And so she, she sent me a poem, and this poem captures her place of poverty. So I want to share this poem. Just listen to this poem. It's pretty, I think it's pretty easy to access. This is my friend's place of poverty, caring for her daughter. I want you to hear these words, and then just a few more things I'll say, and then we'll pray. This is what my friend Susie writes. I won't be at the stable. I'll be tending to the sheep. Looking for the lost and lonely, mending those whose cuts are deep. I won't be at the stable, but I've seen the stars so bright and heard the angels singing of our Savior's birth that night. I won't be at the stable, though I feel as though I should. I'll stay and care for those who can't, who would run there if they could. I won't be at the stable to worship God's own Son, who came to bring salvation to each and every one. I won't be at the stable, but perhaps he'll hear my voice as I join with all the angels and sing out, rejoice, rejoice. I won't be at the stable, but I know a king was born to rule and reign forever on that holy Christmas morn. Advent is more than just waiting. Advent is also about waiting in the right places. So again, I want to invite you this week to sing with Mary, to pray with Mary, to identify those places where you're poor, where you're weak, where you're broken, where you're insufficient, ultimately where you're humble, so that it's a good day for you when Jesus comes. And I want you to wait for Jesus because he's going to come and he's going to lift you up. I want you to find those places where where almost all hope is gone, but not all hope is gone because you remember who it is we're waiting for. And you remember what it is he's coming to do. I want you to join the revolution. It's an invitation to join the revolution so that God himself can lift you up. You join by putting your trust in Jesus, believing that he will do what he said he will do. You trust in his forgiveness. You trust, trust in his death and resurrection. You believe that Jesus and Jesus alone can save you, you, rescue you, forgive you, and restore you to life. And and, and as you wait, here's, here's part of the promise. As you wait, as you sit there in your place of poverty, in your home of humility, the king will come to you. And this is, this sound like Jesus. You sit in the least regarded seat. And your king will come to you and say, hey, come here. I got a better seat for you. Come sit at the table with the king. You're a child of the king. You're a prince. You're a princess. Come sit with me.
and enjoy this feast, the feast of the Lamb. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, I do pray that we would hear this as good news this morning. This is good news for us. I pray that we would hear it as good news. And I, you know, we are a church. We are, we are, not, we are not afraid to talk about the rigors of discipleship. That actually, Jesus, when you talk about following you, and you, you invite people to do so, but it, it means leaving everything, leaving, we don't even understand fully what that means, but you're so beautiful, so, because there's no one like you, we're just, we're in, Jesus, and we follow you, and as we follow you, we learn what it means to leave everything else behind. We learn that as we give things up, you give us so much more. What we really need, what we really rest, and joy, and hope, and peace, and purpose, and meaning, so that we know who we are, and we know that we're loved. But we confess that taking up our cross is hard for us, and so, Jesus, I, I pray that all of us in this room or online right now, I, pr- I pray that each one of us would have the courage to do this this week, oh, give us grace, but... But a few of us are going to sit down with you this week, Jesus, and we're going to try to access some parts of our life that are scary, cause us discomfort, make us sad. But Jesus, we're going to believe that you're the safest person we've ever met, and we're going to meet you there. And we're going to trust that if this is too big for us alone, you're going to bring friends into our path to help us navigate the pain. And as we journey together through the discomfort, we're going to slowly experience in ways that we don't even know, but you will show us how you lift us up. And we're going to leap for joy. (laughs) Hallelujah.